Welcome to the Afikta Podcast. Today we're going to be having a conversation uh, with myself, Mikey Mahenna, Rami Abu Khalil, and our guest, Sultan Al Qasmi, who is a writer and the founder of the Bajil Art Foundation. This conversation was originally recorded over Zoom on April 30th, 2020. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm very excited to introduce uh, Sultan Saud Al Qasimi to those of you who don't know him. He is a, a, a columnist and a researcher on social, political, cultural issues. Uh, in the Arab Gulf and more globally across the Arab world. He is uh, published in the Financial Times, The Independent, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, Open Democracy, The National, The Globe and Mail, uh, many other publications as well. Uh, you know, I first heard of Sultan, uh, you know, roughly around the time of the, of the Arab Spring when he was very active on, on Twitter and almost you know, really became a major news source. Um, uh, you know, kind of rivaling other news networks. Even at the time, he was named uh, one of the 140 best Twitter feeds of 2011. Um, uh, since then, he's been a practitioner in residence at the Hagop Kevorkian uh, Center for the Near East Studies at NYU in 2017. Uh, uh, he was a Yale Greenberg World Fellow and a lecturer at the uh, Council for Middle East Studies at Yale University in 2018, an adjunct instructor at the Center for Contemporary Art Studies at Georgetown University in 2019, and more recently, uh, he has been a visiting instructor teaching a course on politics of modern Middle Eastern art at Boston College. Um, uh, Sultan is also very importantly to our conversation today, uh, the founder of the Bergil Arab, Arab Art Foundation, which is an independent initiative established in 2010 to contribute to intellectual development of the Arab scene in the Arab region by building a prominent and publicly accessible art collection in the UAE. Um, and that collection also acts as a, as a kind of lending collection that really distributes Arab world across the region. And I think part of our discussion today, we will be precisely perhaps about this movement, you know, refocusing in on the Arab world, but also distributing Arab culture across the world. And, you know, just how interesting that dynamic can be, you know, always moving in and then moving out. Right. And, and on top of that, I also want to mention... Uh, that Sultan is currently conducting research for a book that documents modern architecture uh, in the city of Sharjah in the UAE. Um, and I think this is another strand that we want to explore today, maybe. So not just interest in art uh, and art history, but also interest in architecture and architectural history and specifically how it shaped the, the radical transformation of the Gulf over the next, over the last two generations. And again, this is another thing that, you know, I want to try to touch on today, you know, why is that interesting? And again, how is that part of both local, local movements and also international movements and the dialogue between the two? Um, and then, you know, before we start the conversation, I also want to mention, uh, you know, Mikey and I are, are very fortunate to know Sultan on a more personal level. We've, we've uh, spoken to Sultan many times in person. Um, he, is, he has been a continuous supporter of Afikra and is part of the Afikra board as well. Um, and again, on a more personal note, you know, I don't know if, if, if nobody's met Sultan in person before, he is probably one of the most um, dynamic and really active person that I have met in my life, really. I don't think uh, I have seen Sultan sit still for more than, uh, than two minutes. 
And so I'm really looking forward to just um, how exciting and dynamic the conversation is going to be today. So, um, Mikey, do you want me to kick it off with a couple of questions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Start it off. So, Sultan, I've, um, I'm very curious to, to know, I've always wanted to ask you, sort of how did you first um, become interested in, in, uh, in art? And maybe what was the first time that you thought, you know what, I, I want to buy art. You know, I, you know, what was the first piece or, or thing that made you think, I, I need art around me? Who doesn't? Um, <laughs> so, so very quickly, thank you so much, Mikey. Thank you so much, Rami. I'm a huge fan of both of you. Uh, and Afikra, I'm a huge fan of this uh, cultural revolution that you have kicked off in the past few years. A huge admirer. You guys are changing the world to the better. So thank you so much. To answer your question, um, I first came across art, I think as everybody else, going to museums when we were traveling. Uh, I was uh, lucky to have visited some cities uh, in the West. And even in the East, I encountered some artists in India when I was going there, uh, visiting with my father as a child, as well as visiting some countries in the Arab world. I didn't know who they were, but I, I encountered that art. I think the first time that I ever saw an artwork that was profound and had an impact on me was obviously Picasso's Guernica. And that was in high school when we were studying uh, sort of the, the history of uh, the inter, uh, interwar period. We were looking at World War I and just before World War II, we looked at Picasso's Guernica. I think that was the first time that I thought, hold on a second, this is an interesting way of the use of art to deliver a message. Uh, then when I went to Paris, I visited uh, a couple of institutions when I was there. One of them was Musée d'Orsay uh, and the other one was the Institut de Monde Arabe and they both had a huge impact on me. And when did I think that I want to buy art? That was in the early 2000s uh, where I thought this is something aesthetically pleasing. I still didn't develop the idea that this could be used as a tool or as a weapon, as a weapon in a good sense, a as a way, in or a way for us to tell our story, which is what I consider Arab art to be. We need more representation. We need yeah. more ways to tell our story through music, through poetry, through film, and through art. So, so yeah. what was the yeah. first artwork that you bought that you thought, this artwork is telling a story that I, I, and I want everybody to listen to this story? And yeah, actually, if I can just underline the last part of that sentence, um, people buy art. Lots of people buy art, right? Um, not everyone buys art to share it publicly. Um, and so that last part of the, uh, Rami's question, I think, is really, really important, where you've decided, I not only want to accumulate art, I have a story to tell. What is the story that Bergil is trying to tell? And why are you even telling it? Why don't you have just a private collection? <laughs> so there's two, there's two parts to this answer. This is the first time I ever mentioned this in my life. So the first time I started buying art was trying to buy the art that my female cousins were making. I won't say their names, but many of my female cousins were some of the top artists in the region. They get married, they stop making art. I noticed this as a trend and I started buying their work and I still have them. Maybe four or five of these wonderful artists, they stopped painting 20 years ago. And so that was one way to safeguard their legacy. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, the, the other part is that I started buying art that I could show because I can never show my cousin's works. That's for me. But the other part was trying to show uh, works by 
uh, individuals in the Arab world who are either um, minorities who have been uh, either um, not represented well enough, whether they're talking, we're talking about women, talking about uh, Shia, talking about Christian groups, talking about any persecuted or minority group in the Arab world. I was very interested in showing that they exist, that they create work, that they add value. And this is something that even 17, 18 years after I started buying art in the UAE, we have a community of, uh, of uh, Ajam, we have a community of Shia, we have a community of people who originally hail from outside the land that's the UAE. And it was important for me also to showcase their art. Um, I think that was one of the reasons I had in the back of my mind. Can you talk ahead. a little bit more um, about this idea of art um, as something that isn't just uh, something you, that you passively consume, but something that actually changes your perception of culture and maybe changes your perception of society as you see it? Because I think that seems like an important part of how you see art. Well, unfortunately, um, in many cases, Arab women have been presented as two-dimensional. Uh, as, in, as individuals who are passive, as individuals who didn't contribute, which is completely wrong. As something I knew growing up, uh, coming from a household where my mother was a teacher, my aunt was a principal, uh, my, my grandmother was, was, uh, never went to school, but she raised two women who went to school. So I knew how Arab women were very strong women, but then it was important to showcase that to the rest of the world through their artworks. Now, some people can do this through music, through film, that's completely legit, that's correct. But what I can do and what my interest is, is presenting Arab women as individuals who are leaders. And if you think about stories of pioneer women in the Arab world, like, uh, um, like in Egypt, you have Inji Aflatun, who not only was a, uh, a, an activist and an artist, but she, she, she wrote manifestos. She protested in the streets. The woman changed Egypt to the better. If you think of um, Munir Al-Qazi in Kuwait, her story rep represents so many people in the Gulf. She was born in India, she came to the Gulf, her family lives between Kuwait and Saudi, uh, and she, int she introduced abstract painting to the region. So that's, that's a, huge, uh, a huge point that we need to make, and we can make it through art. What, um, Sultan, if I take a look at the last two uh, exhibitions that Barjil has produced, um, this Taking Shape, which has uh, just recently uh, ended its run and a Century in Flux. What is the difference in the story that you're trying to tell with those two pieces? And while you do, if you don't mind, I'm gonna just show some of the pieces from a Century in Flux. You can talk um, as well, but you know, what is, what is Bajir trying to say right now? This is the book. This is Taking Shape, um, the, the book, the exhibition that's currently yeah. in New York in lockdown. Uh, so so uh, Rami, can you imagine that this entire period, this entire region of the Arab world, are we 300 or 300 people? This entire region didn't have a single publication on abstract art. We had an essay here, an article there, but there was never a publication that investigated and highlighted and wrote the history of abstraction in the Arab world. And so we have, I think, nine or 10 essays by the top scholars in the Arab world, from Sudan, from Iraq, from, uh, from Morocco, from Lebanon. And it's the first time ever. How can you even fathom that? That there are, there's never been a book 
that published the history of abstraction in the Arab world. And people assume that abstraction in the Arab world copied from the West. This book changes the entire notion how abstraction in the Arab world was, was inspired by different, uh, different notions such as Sufism, um, sometimes religion, sometimes, uh, sometimes nationalist notions. Uh, and, and guess what, Rami? Uh, guess what, Mikey? We've only touched the surface with this book. Nine essays is nothing for a region of 300 million, for a region of tens of thousands of artists to have nine essays, that's nothing. And so we need to have 20, 30 books like that. And then we would have at least written a little bit about our history. I, you know, as we talk about these exhibitions, um, I wanna to touch on, on an idea that, you know, what Bergil is doing in a way run parallels runs parallel to what some other people are doing. You know, there are other collections across uh, the Gulf and also across the Arab world that are trying to tell similar stories. But one of the things that I see maybe is a little, little bit different, and I, you know, I'd like you to elaborate a little bit on that, is that you, know, you see a kind of almost diplomatic role um, to your collections that you know, there's a kind of cultural diplomacy that happens here where you, where you want to tell that story not just in the Gulf and, and for a local Arab audience, I suppose, but also internationally. Can you talk a little bit about that? So um, we've tried through Barjil to make the works accessible uh, to, to countries and to museums around the world. So we have loaned, I think, to 70, 60 or 70 museums around the world. In many cases, Rami, we actually fund the loan. In, in some instances, a museum says, we'd love to show Arab art, but we have no budget. I think, hmm, how come you have budget for other countries' art? But no problem. You, that's a good step that you want to show art from the region, uh, then we'll facilitate. We'll, we'll, fund, we'll fund one way, you fund the other way. And, uh, and so this is one way of facilitating the, uh, the exposure of Arab art. Uh, and when I say Arab art, by the way, I need to make this clear. I'm not talking about ethnic Arab here because in the Arab world, we have Armenian Arab. And I know they're, they're Armenian ethnically, but they grew up in the Arab world and we've, ado we've adopted them. They're, they're, our, they're, they're our family, they're our brothers and sisters. Uh, we have uh, Jewish Arabs, we have uh, all sorts of uh, Christian, Muslim, Shia, Sunni, all sorts of different minorities, Turkmen. All these individuals are included in the, uh, in the notion of uh, the greater Arab uh, uh, idea. Now, um, one thing I would say, uh, Rami, here is there was an exhibition that took place in Tehran in 2016, I believe. Uh, and that was an exhibition in which we sent uh, uh, 40 paintings from the Arab world. And we, uh, we collaborated with the Tehran, the Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art, Timoka, which is one of the most beautiful buildings in the, in the Middle East, designed by uh, 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 Kamran Diva in the 70s. And so this, uh, this was the first time, Rami, that 40 artworks from the Arab world traveled from across the region, okay? And, uh, and it was met with 40 Iranian artists. And so in some rooms, you had uh, exclusively Arab art, in some rooms, you had exclusively Iranian art. And in some rooms, you had them both meshed together in a sense that when you walk into the room, you have no idea who's Iraqi and who's Iranian, who's Syrian and who's Kuwaiti. In the end, they all sort of meshed together. And that was just such a beautiful sight. We had, in, in a period of, I think, five or six weeks, we had over 20,000 visitors. It was wow. packed. We had the deputy minister of culture of Iran. And you can imagine, Rami, that this took place at the backdrop of a war that just started in the Southern Arabian Peninsula. 
that is seen as a uh, as a proxy war by many people between some Arab states and, and Iran-backed forces. And so to have this exhibition travel was so important for us. It was so challenging. It was so uh, difficult to, to get this exhibition uh, there, Rami, that I had to remove myself. So I took a step back. Believe it or not, I never went. I never traveled. And that was the, the price to pay to take this exhibition there and it not being about me, but being about the art. We even took my name off the website. I wasn't even on our Wikipedia page. And so that was the way that we got this show there. When the works came back, I put my name back on the website, but it was covered in Financial Times, in The Guardian, uh, uh, so many publications wrote about it. And the, and the book itself is such a gorgeous book. And, and I think that was really one of the peak moments of the foundation. So I'd say, so in the 60s, we had ping pong diplomacy. This is, this is uh, modern art diplomacy. Um, I want to shift gears for a second because we can spend three hours only talking about the work that Bajil is doing. Um, and I'd love to talk uh, briefly before we get to the architecture stuff about um, how you got started, which is, uh, Rami alluded to, which is through your use of social media, um, really playing a, a prominent role during the Arab Spring as a commentator, as a ad hoc translator, um, really asserting yourself saying, okay, I think I can use social media as a tool to enlighten, as an educational tool, as a tool to bring people together, the same way that your Tehran exhibition was to try to bring people together. Can you talk about the way you see your individual platform on social media. You can talk about um, the culture of majlis uh, work that you're doing. What role are you, how are you using the internet to educate and to bring people together? So I started um, on, on Twitter. I remember I should do a shout out here for my, my friend Sunny Rahbar. Uh, yeah. co-founder of Third Line, who, uh, who initially suggested to me to get on Twitter. This was early 2009. Uh, and so um, I, I used Twitter basically to, uh, to post articles in the beginning in 2009 and 10. And then 2011, you know, end of 2010, Arab Spring starts. And I, all I did was translate. I tried not to put any personal um, opinion. Twitter yeah. and social media can be a, a two-edged sword. It can be something that you can use to do good things, but it can also uh, hurt you if, you if you hold it the wrong way around. And so um, that happened to me a couple of times on social media uh, that I got in trouble because of posts, uh, which I, I end up uh, taking, uh, uh, how do you say, long breaks off social media. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here so that we can all uh, hang out in person one day. Um, so the, uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, Mikey, there's so much bad news about the Arab world and negative news about the, the Arab world, Rami. Uh, there's, I don't know who, which terrorist group did what, I don't know what's happening. It's so negative. I, I try to keep up. I read about it, but I try not to post about it because you know yeah. what? It just won't add value. You know what? Something bad happened fine. How can we counter that? Let's write something positive. Let's write a blog post. There are thousands of Arab artists who have never had even a biography. Let, we don't even know their dates of birth and, and, and dates of passing. These are all histories that are disappearing. And so what I try to do now on social media is use it for good. I try to reclaim social media of 2009, 10, 11, 12 even, uh, reclaim it for this new era uh, uh, in which everything is just so negative. Yeah. You know, enough. 
And so what can we do? We can do what Mikey and Rami and the team at Afikra is doing. We can, we can prepare cultural talks, record them, keep them in perpetuity. Guys, use social media for good. Go on Instagram. Yes, don't do disappearing stories. Do, do things that we can look up later. And the thing is, uh, uh, Mikey, we need as many people as possible to write and document. Just yesterday, we were listening to uh, Adela Laidi uh, uh, Hania, the director yeah. of the Palestinian Museum, and, and she was talking about people documenting uh, the photographs of their families, of their grandparents in the Arab world. Many of our families were migrants. My father went to India and came back. Many of your yeah. families lived in, in, in parts of the world, in Africa, in, in, in Europe, in, in North America. Let's document their histories. This thing yeah. needs to be registered. It's, I always say that we're all in the diaspora. <laughs> Regardless of where you live, it's, this is a mobile, this is a mobile uh, community. Uh, uh, Rami, you want to ask a little bit about um, architecture before we move on? Yeah, I'm trying to see how much time we still have to talk about art. I want to talk about art a little bit more. <laughs> more. <laughs> Exclusive. I think but, the Q and A we're going to get to a lot of art. Yeah, stuff we'll, as well. well, you know what, we'll, we'll get to some of it in the Q and A. Um, maybe um, talk to us a little bit about. I, I was actually, you know, when I was following you on 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 Twitter, etc. At the time, I was actually surprised at some point um, to start seeing you, you know, become so interested in the urban history, and the urban transformation, and the architectural transformation of of, of Sharjah. And, in, you know, in a way, it seemed like a very local interest, an interest in your community, but it also was trying to tell a bigger story about the modernization of, uh, of the Gulf. And, and I will, you know, I will put it in perspective to say that, you know, in cultural criticism and architectural criticism, there's often a lot of cynicism about discussions around modernity in the Gulf, because it's seen as a kind of um, import, you know, it's seen, it's seen as something that was completely foreign that was brought in. And I think that you have a much more um, nuanced understanding of it uh, and how it actually came from within to a degree and reflected the transformation of that society itself. So talk to us a little bit about where did that interest come from What's, you know, why is it so important to you um, and what's your current research about? Uh, thank you. So um, my interest in architecture actually goes back uh, two, three decades. When I was young, I would, I would uh, you know, wander around the city, admire many of the buildings. Uh, the name Barjil, the word Barjil actually is an architectural uh, uh, you yeah, know, it, it's an architectural element, right? So even 12 years ago, I was thinking about architecture. I remember when I when I was talking to my colleagues, uh, Todris, uh, uh, Reem Khorshid, and Ammar Adfar, and Farah Fayyad, when I was talking to them, I, I told them that I remember their buildings, uh, Rami, that have been demolished 20 years ago. And I remember telling them, guys, I remember uh, going to school, Shwefat, when I was very young, 25, 30 years ago, looking at this building that was there at this corner of the street on this roundabout. It was a beautiful building and it's gone. I had a photographic memory. And so we would start looking for that building. And, and so I was always interested in architecture. Uh, but now that I have the time, now that I have the inclination to do the research, conduct the research, uh, which is, this is why we are working on a book on Sharjah. And I'm also working on a book with my, with my colleague, uh, Roberto Fabri, who's in Mexico. Uh, on Middle Eastern modernism and Middle Eastern architecture that we're hoping to come out sometime next year. So 
there's it's a two-pronged approach here that I'm trying to do local Sharjah, but also Middle East. We've had some wonderful contributors. And you know, Rami, we've made mistakes along the way. And it's, it's so interesting uh, trying to uncover these uh, lost histories. So many of these architects, Rami, that, uh, that I wondered about, we, we started writing their stories. And what, what happens when you, when you document the modern history of a city, it tells you about that moment in history, that moment in history in Amman, when architects came from Syria and from Beirut and from Egypt, or that moment in history in Kuwait, when architects came from Egypt and from the US and from India, that moment in history in Sharjah, where I'm from, where architects came from Cyprus, when archi where architects came from Japan, where architects came from all over the world. It tells you about what these cities became. These became uh, magnets uh, uh, to immigrants, migrants to um, magnets to people who are interested in, in, in putting their uh, thumbprint on, on the city. And no, it wasn't the fact that everything was imported. It wasn't the fact. In many cases, they had to take inspiration from local architecture. In many cases, yeah. they had to uh, ab abide by by uh, uh, by regional uh, regional uh, elements. They had to use. Uh, I mean, if you think of a city like Masqat, in Masqat, they had to either uh, the, the colors of the buildings are either uh, beige, uh, uh, light brown, or white. That that was the the, uh, the the nature of the city. And so, yes, you've had uh, you've had. All these architects, Rami, who came in from abroad, who brought their brand new ideas, but many of them had to uh, adapt local uh, local motifs in their in their work. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, Sultan, uh, Rami and I were talking about this earlier today, and we were sort of wondering um, what is drawing you to modernism broadly versus sort of contemporary art or other types of architecture? Is it an aesthetic appeal? Is it a time in history, how it correlates to the enormous amount of changes politically that were happening in this, in this region? The 20th century is quite literally a century of flux as you've, you've created a whole um, exhibit around it. Like, what about modernism appeals to you? Mikey, that's a great question. I'm, I'm interested in modern art. So I, I like the second half of the 20th century, the history of the second half of the 20th century in the Arab world. It was a time of great change. It was a time yeah. in which most countries in the Arab world, I know you guys in Lebanon were before us, you got your independence from, yeah. from, from countries, but many countries like Egypt and, uh, and North Africa, Levant, many of the Gulf states got their independence. Identities were formed, right? New uh, flags were born, new identities were born. And so it's a moment in history that deserves to be documented. But it's also some of the, um, some of the last moments that we are able to document this history. And, and this is a good chance, Mikey, maybe to remind the younger viewers here, the people who are in their 20s and, and, and younger even, you should document your, your contemporary history. You should write about what happened in the past three, four years. Because in 20 years from now, it won't be as easy. We learned that the hard way. Many of the architects we're trying to interview are no longer there. Many of the architects, they've, uh, they, we're communicating with their kids, we're communicating with their uh, descendants, with their estate holders. Uh, I am not saying that modernism is more important than contemporary history. But I'm saying is everything needs to be documented. If we don't document modernism now, it's very difficult for us to do so later. I'll give you one example, and this way I'll be able to also bring back uh, Rami's yeah. uh, interest in art. We have bought many paintings by, by modern artists uh, from Lebanon, Palestine. Uh, we have a, an artist called Juliana Serafim who passed away. We don't know titles of her works. 
it's it's that it's that simple had she been alive uh, mikey we could have gone to her and say could you give us the titles of these paintings we don't yeah. know titles of works by munira al-qadi we don't know titles of works of artists who uh, who have passed away and those who refuse to speak anymore and so our mother our history is being lost we need to uh, race against time and document this mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's, uh, I think the conversation on, um, you know, there's, there's, there's so much consistency, I think, between what you're doing in terms of researching and encouraging research into modern architecture and, and kind of modern urban history in the Gulf and doing the same thing with, with Arab art because it's so easy these days to see the collection of contemporary art as almost like a, de facto investment almost like yeah of course you're going to collect contemporary art you know and, and so many people do that um you know just because it's a good almost a good investment really even even arab art uh but collecting modern art uh you're right you know it does it does carry a bigger a bigger agenda and it's more you know it's more difficult precisely for all those reasons um, yeah i mean but i just say it's not about collecting you don't have to be a collector Mm -hmm. uh, if you can document so most mm -hmm. people don't have access to the resources that i have access to i've been i've been blessed i've been very lucky but what can you do can you document can you interview can you do something that 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 could record histories look this book that uh, that Mohammed Shahid published on the architecture of uh, of uh, Cairo many people helped out as well so thanks to all of them this book on the modern architecture of Kuwait many people ha helped out so what can you do to help the documentation of your city and your country yeah, those two books, uh, you know, really are, I mean, I, ha I have both of them and, um, you know, I think every city needs, every Arab city needs a book like that, for sure. And, you know, again, understanding how our cities have changed in the modern era is so important to understand what, what still needs to change in the future and how do we do that. Is there, is there a sense of not only building understanding, but also building pride? Um, like, I feel like, uh, Sultan, when you gave me a tour of Sharjah, you're beaming with pride. Um, you know, is there a sense of saying like that book of that book on Kuwait, right? Um, it, the thesis of it is, uh, to me, when I, when I look through it is this is beautiful. You residents of Kuwait, like enjoy the architecture. There is beauty here, right? Do you feel like part of your diplomacy, this idea of art, artwork as diplomacy, it's almost <laughs> this, your work seems like it's uh, wrapped up in this idea of, we should be proud of this stuff. I always say that I'm an Arab nationalist for the 21st century. I might not be politically nationalist, uh, but I am definitely culturally uh, a nationalist. And also it's a new form of nationalism that absorbs the different minorities and the different groups and the different uh, um, parts of the Arab world that, was that were neglected. And Mikey, to answer your question, uh, does it give me pride? I am super proud of the Arab world. With all the bad negative things that the, the media portrays, there's so much good that's being produced. There's so much great music. I was just posting today about these great rappers from Syria, from Palestine, from Lebanon, uh, that produce some of the best music. Why consume Western music when you can consume your regional music that is as good, if not better? To be honest with you, it took me two decades to reverse brainwash myself, where I always believed that 
Western music was superior. Western art was superior. So many of my friends, you just talk to them about some Western artist and their eyes just, they just have the sparkle in their eyes and they're so happy with Picasso and they're so happy with all these Western artists. And I, and I feel pity for them. I feel sad for them. I, th I think to myself, it's important for you to acknowledge these Western artists and admire their work. Yes, but do you not have five minutes to learn about your own artists? Are you only going to be a child of sort of Western propaganda that we have been forced to consume through media, through books, through even without us wanting to? to? And so what can I do? Sultan, I'm 42 years old. What can I do? Can I just complain about it? No, I need to produce books. I need to write, I need to tweet, I need to make this information available to them. And then yes, it will give them a sense of pride. Once you allow people, once you show them the way, you give them the opportunity. One last thing, you can't force people to change their minds, but you can just show them the way. And if they choose to consume the information, then you've won. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. Um, Rami, before we open it up, I. I I want to ask maybe uh, one more question each and then open it up to questions because there's a ton of questions and I know that there's a hard stop okay. on the hour. Um, uh, my last question, Sultan, is on that topic. Afikra um, is all about, you know, uh, cultivating curiosity, getting people to dive into new stuff that they don't know. Um, if you were to recommend three books, you were picking up some books, three books um, or documentaries or museums that people have to go check out. Um, that would be wonderful. And maybe you can answer this after Rami's question if you want to sort of uh, think about it a little bit. Um, so that, uh, but I want to plant that seed at some point. Yeah. Do you want to, do you want to go ahead and answer that or? Okay, so um, I, well, I recommend, uh, um, if you want to read a book, this is an interesting book. It's called, uh, about this man called Ali. It was written by Emel Ghandour, uh, our very own Fadi Ghandour's uh, sister. Um, uh, Ali Jabri was a, uh, a Jordanian artist, and I think he had origins all over the Levant. He was, had Syrian origins as well in him. And he was an artist who uh, was killed. Uh, in 2002, and it's a, it's a wonderful history of this unknown artist in the Arab world, uh, beautifully written. She's included elements of his biography, uh, sorry, elements of his diary. And so it's almost, I, I, if I ever meet uh, Amal, I will tell her, this book is, is so good that it could almost uh, be, uh, it could almost be credited, written by Amal Ghandour and Ali Jabri, because she really <laughs> gives you, she gives, no, she gives you a sort of a first person uh, feel to this book. Um, documentaries, wow, a documentary. Oh, uh, there's, I just posted this documentary the other day uh, called a a a Age of the Image. It's by a, a British researcher called James Fox. It's four parts on BBC, just came out before this thing that's going around started. Uh, and it's a four hour documentary, highly recommended. Um, and which museum to visit? Of course, visit the Sharjah Art Museum. That's where the Barjil collection is. And it's a wonderful museum. Uh, shout out to our partners there. Okay, great. Amazing. Um, I, so my, before we go to the other questions, you know, my, my last question for you was almost more of a provocation. Um, but I would like you to react to this idea of um, not Arab nationalism, but, but a kind of Arab uh, cultural landscape, I guess. And, you know, when I look at the Arab world right now, there are some fissures that 
where like the, the old capitals seem to look at the, the Gulf with almost a kind of cynicism. Um, but at the same time, I see you as somebody who's actually bridging these fissures and has a much more maybe overall overarching view of Arab culture that kind of transcends some of these tensions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is that something that you feel? Is that something you think is relevant? Is that something that you think will just pass? Well, I think, well, you know, I wrote an article about these new Gulf cities 2013 that got me into a lot of trouble. But so I, the, the premise of the article was that these new Gulf cities, uh, Doha, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and even Sharjah is, are, are rising. And while some other cities in the Arab world were uh, seeing a, a lot of conflict and sometimes underinvestment. Uh, so so uh, that, was a, that was an article that got me uh, a lot of comments and I was very happy with uh, sparking that debate. But in reality, Rami, uh, what the Gulf states are today couldn't have happened without many immigrants who came from South Asia, from Iran, from Africa, from Europe, and from the Arab world. So we wouldn't have, my mother wouldn't have been literate had it not been for her two Palestinian teachers. Uh, uh, so many, many of these immigrants who came uh, contributed to the formation of the identity of the Gulf. And I always say that they added strength upon strength. So they did not replace our identity, but especially the, our Arab brethren, um, they, I think they added so much more value to us. Uh, and we, and I, we're so lucky in the Gulf, we understand so many Arab accents. If you speak to uh, uh, people in some parts <laughs> of the Arab world, they don't understand our <laughs> accent. But, but I'm going to talk to you Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so that was one thing. And I also believe that, that now that the Arab, that the Gulf states have been so fortunate with their oil wealth, have been so fortunate with, uh, with all these immigrants who came and, and added strength to them, you know, to quote from, uh, is it a, a Spider-Man quote, uh, with, with great power comes great responsibility. So what is our responsibility in the Gulf vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the Arab world? Are we going to help them out? Are we going to fund cultural institutions, museums, or are we going to cause trouble? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, uh, we need to see more of the uh, first than the latter. We need to help uh, uh, North Africa, Levant, uh, Sudan, and, and, and Yemen with funding of their cultural institutions, funding of their uh, educational requirements, funding of um, hospitals. That's what we need to see going forward, I think. I, I mean, I would, uh, I completely agree with that. I would also, you know, continue that provocation and say that we are actually at a moment now where some of the old, Older, I mean, older is, a, is not the right word, but, you know, cities like Beirut, cities like Cairo, etc., are actually at the point where they are looking back towards the Gulf and learning and saying, okay, they're, you know, this is what they're doing right. We should be doing this too, right? And so, you know, this is always my answer to the cynics, you know, in, in kind of Beirut or Damascus or etc. It's like, no, but actually the, there are certain things that the Gulf is really getting right and really managing to... to to transform urbanistically in some very positive ways. And you can be as critical of it as you want, but actually it's important to understand what they're doing right too. And I think you have your finger on, 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 on that pulse in some of your interest in, in modernist, the modernist transformation of Sharjah, for example. You know, that, that's what I think is so important is that it's not a cynical view of, oh, this is just a shallow kind of radical transformation. It's saying, no, let's look at what they did right and let's really learn from that urban transformation that we can apply to any Arab capital at this point. 
Sultan, just I know we have a hard stop, so I want to take in a couple questions. Um, Let's do it. In the chat, I wrote the order. Um, so Rami uh, A, and then we have Farah and Amin, and then we'll try to take at least a couple. Um, if you can limit yourself to one question, um, that would be great. So Rami, if you could unmute yourself and go ahead and ask your question. Um, hey there. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you, guys. Uh, this is a really something very warm and tremendous to see and to be a part of. Uh, and naturally, I have many questions, but since I'm limited to one, I'm, I think I'm going to ask this one. Um, on the topic of modernism and identity, and how it, and this question is how it relates to language. Um, based on my personal experiences, and I feel that perhaps some of you might feel the same way is that there appears to be a language split between sort of like the intellectuals and the intelligentsia that say that, you know, we need to take care of our culture, but we are communicating now in English and we are sharing information primarily in English. And then there is the, the rest of the Arab world where, you know, they don't have the access to the same resources and their primary language is Arabic. So, how do you see this? Is this a problem and what can we be done about it? And why are we using English so much? So uh, uh, Rami, I think that's a wonderful question. What, we, what we've tried to do at Barjil is to Arabize our content. So our website is Arabized, our platform with Google, our entire platform with Google now is Arabized. We've published uh, some books in Arabic as well. We're trying to publish as much uh, in Arabic as possible. I completely agree with you. Uh, we, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't uh, uh, appear, we shouldn't even appear to be looking down at Arabic. I think Arabic is such a gorgeous language. I, you know, I text with my family in classical Arabic. I write my journal in classical Arabic. Uh, I, I listen to Arabic music all the time. I consume so much Arabic, uh, uh, sort of Arabic content. Uh, and I definitely am proud. Uh, and I, I think that we need to give Arabic a more of a, um, more, some more respect. Uh, but I think this is coming. This is something that is that you're seeing uh, happening more. You see more publications uh, in Arabic. You're seeing more people uh, write in Arabic. Uh, and so I feel like we can slowly, um, we can slowly, uh, how do I say, do both. We can manage to do both. Uh, increase the amount of Arabic that we produce, but also not decrease the amount of English that we produce because we need to maintain communication with the rest of the world. So if English is here, let's try to bring Arabic all the way up and even exceed it one day, but not at the expense of any other language. There's an interesting point about um, just looping back to something you said earlier about is that um, you're trying to tell the story of the people who live in this region, not the Arabs of this region, right? So um, I think, uh, I agree with what, both those things, as in increasing both, um, because, uh, you know, uh, the Armenians, you know, the Armenians of Lebanon, for example, right, uh, didn't arrive speaking Arabic on day one, um, and doesn't mean that their story isn't, isn't as valuable. Not that they necessarily spoke English, but uh, increasing the literacy, the literal, uh, the lit literate options is, lingual options is, I think, important. Um, okay, so Amin, I think you're up next. Okay. Uh, hey, everyone. Just, uh, I wanted to thank you guys, Mikey, Rami, and Sultan. Um, as mentioned before, this is a really amazing uh, thing to have, especially during the pandemic. Um, Sultan, I wanted to ask you, how do you think 
um, the internet has like helped shape the documenting of the modern artistic and, ar and architectural history. You were talking before about encouraging us and the younger generation to document the history around us. Do you think that the internet has helped us or maybe even like pushed us back in some ways? Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, this is such a great question. You know, uh, I'll just give you two, uh, two examples. Uh, once I came across a, uh, an architect in my early research three years ago, and I, and I posted and I said, friends in Egypt, uh, I'm looking for this architect called Huwadi. And then uh, his niece messages and said, hey, that's my uncle. This is his number. Call him. And so we were able to get everything we wanted. We got his biography. We got his pictures. We got the work he did. So it's something that is just incredible. This, this artwork, uh, this artwork, for instance, is by an Egyptian artist. Uh, and I remember posting on Twitter and saying, uh, hey, everybody, uh, I'm looking for a modern abstract artist from Egypt, uh, women, modern women artists. Uh, and then this, this, uh, this Sudanese lady on Twitter called Nahla Osman uh, messaged me and said, when I was living in Cairo in the 1990s, my neighbor, the floor above me, was an Egyptian modernist. And she was really lovely. This is her, this is her kids, her, her daughter's number. I called them up and turns out that she represented Egypt in the Sao Paulo Biennial in the 50s. And so these, these women, these individuals were our lost histories that social media allowed us to get in touch, in touch with. And so social media, yes, can be used for a lot of negative things, but we definitely have found positive ways to use it as well. Thank you very much, Mikey, Rami, and Sultan. And I guess my, my question kind of follows up to the question that was asked uh, previously on the documentation of art. Um, I was just wondering, how, would, like, how, how does one document art in a virtual world? Um, insofar as does it have as much meaning um, if the documentation and the conservation is done intangibly? And in other words, if we begin or accelerate, as you recommended, um, the process of the documentation of Arab art today in a digital world, are we missing anything that's singularly intrinsic to tangibility that perhaps other regions in the world have already um, documented and secured? And by virtue of kind of missing that tangibility in the documentation, um, are we missing out on anything or how can we compensate that loss of uh, the documentation process? I think, uh, again, in the virtual world, uh, uh, what, the, what the internet, what social media, what, 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 uh, what new technologies have allowed us to do is, is be at home and do something useful and write and produce and uh, either produce uh, biographies or, or write about um, write about uh, lost histories, right? So, so for instance, there's some, some, some things that we're, that we're missing are just the basic information about artists, biographies of artists, uh, people, that, people that you'd assume that uh, something inf some information exists about them, but there's never been anything written. So, uh, of course, you can't expect people to delve too deep, but what happens, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, is it Amin? Uh, there's this young, young Afghan uh, student I know in the U.S. who, in the U.S., he's, he's studying in, uh, um, at CCS Bard. Uh, I posted about him saying, this is my friend, uh, Mohib, who's trying to document modern Afghan art. After that post went on, on social media, and I hope Mohib writes about this one day, he was able to, uh, to connect with four or five individuals around the world, including Europe, uh, Dubai, um, Australia, in uh, 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 Canada, I think he connected with five others, all of whom were interested in documenting modern Afghan histories. And so this is thanks to uh, social media, they were able to pool their resources. And so 
when they said when they would meet virtually one would say hey i've written about this woman let's look about let's look at this other artist what about this other architect and so there are ways for us to collaborate uh, uh, online so there's so many positive examples i think we can think about what's your question hilal can you type it in sorry i have to scroll up otherwise i think i saw the question can i read it for you sure yes so one of the things he asked about is that I mentioned uh, minorities. Uh, I didn't mention LGBT uh, artists and queer artists. Uh, so yes, they are a very important part of the community of, uh, of the Arab world. And uh, I think uh, many of them are accomplished artists and they deserve recognition. And uh, I think social media also allows them to, uh, to, to put their work online just like everybody else. So it's very important to recognize their work. And of course, they existed for many, many decades as artists in, mod in the modern world. So this is not just a contemporary uh, issue. This is also going back to the era of modern art in the Arab world. Uh, I, I hope that answers your question. They're very important. Um, what are, um, why are our world uh, fearful of promoting queer artists? Uh, look, Hilal, I think the Arab world is afraid of promoting artists in general. So let's hope they promote all artists, whoever they are, uh, whether, whatever their sexuality is. I'd love to know, just to wrap things up, what is coming down the pike um, for Bajil? When can we expect the new book on uh, Sharjah's architecture? Where can people get the, the books that you guys have published thus far? All that stuff. So some of our books are available um, on, uh, on Amazon. Uh, some of our books are, unfortunately, have been published without an ISBN number. So we, can, we send them out to university libraries. We do that. Uh, so if you have a university library in your neighborhood, let us know and we'll send them a batch of books to make available in, in, in Persian, in Arabic, in French, and in English, the languages we published in. Uh, the Sharjah architecture book should be published uh, next year, hopefully, inshallah. Uh, the modern Middle Eastern architecture book should be published next year as well. We have a collaboration uh, with Google that we're uh, unveiling, hopefully, in the next week or two uh, that, we, that is called In Picture Tour. So we're doing uh, tours of paintings within paintings. So you, you take an artwork and you zoom into different parts of it. Um, we're also looking at doing a, a publication on, uh, on modern uh, art from the, from the Gulf. That's another project we're trying to work uh, with. Um, what else is there? Um, so contact me, uh, I'll send you some, some essays. Our website is full of essays as well. And um, yeah, th that's it. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Sultan. Uh, this was uh, huge. Uh, just personally, you've been such a huge uh, help and advisor. And, uh, so thanks so much for taking the time today and uh, that you take time to support us and support Africa. So um, thanks so much. Thank you, Sultan. See you all next week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious. Stay curious.